Well, if you have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn over to John chapter 13. We're going to finish up John chapter 13 this morning in our, in our study through the Gospel of John, one of the oldest accounts of Jesus' life and his teaching. And just for those of you who are visiting with us for the first time this morning, let me set the stage for you. Where we've come in our study of John has brought us to, uh, to Jesus with his closest followers in a closed-off private room just before he was to give up his own life. And what he's doing with them in this closed-off private room is bringing them in to his deepest desires for them, to a more clear focus than they've ever had to this point on what it would look like for them to follow him after he's gone. What you're going to see when we read this text is that he's making references to the fact that he's about to go somewhere they can't follow. He's about to do something they can't do. And therefore, they're going to need to know what's, what's next for them when, when he's gone. That's what he's bringing them into. And this morning's passage, at the heart of it, the section of it that we're going to spend most of our time on, Jesus gives us one of the most familiar, most beautiful, most daunting descriptions of what it is to be his follower that I know of anywhere in the New Testament. It's familiar. Maybe you've heard it before. Jesus says, By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I mentioned earlier uh, in the announcements, we're talking about this new women's study, a book by John Stott. Uh, mentioned, mentioned John Stott, this pastor from London, last century, really influential, wrote some wonderfully helpful books, one of my favorite writers. There's another book that John Stott wrote that's been really helpful to me. It's a book called Contemporary Christian, The Contemporary Christian. There's this one chapter in there where he, where he talks about love as the primary marker of what it is to be an authentic follower of Jesus. And he starts off that point by sort of raising a question, an open question. What would you say marks a distinctive, authentic follower of Jesus? What would you say it is? It can't be faked. That when you see it, you know it represents Christ. I wonder how you would answer that. He gives a few options. Some might say that that the mark of an authentic follower of Jesus is their knowledge, the things that they know and profess about him. And there's good reason for saying that. There are certain things about Jesus that you have to agree to. You have to understand and agree to to be with him. So you might think about the the famous creeds of the church, maybe the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, these things that summarize what Christians everywhere through all time have believed about who Jesus is. And there's definitely some truth there, right, that that to, to be with him authentically, to be a genuine Christian, you can't just say you like Jesus. You have to say, I believe certain things about Jesus. I believe that he came as God in the flesh. I believe that he gave up his life for me because my sin is a problem I couldn't solve on my own. I believe that he's alive now. Even though he was really dead, he's actually alive now. You have to know these things and affirm them to be a genuine Christian. This knowledge is important. It's non-negotiable, but I think we all know it's not necessarily, not necessarily authentic Christianity. Not only is it possible, but it often is true that somebody might understand these things in their mind and even recite them and claim to believe them, but not really be with Jesus. Maybe you might say, The mark of authentic Christianity is religious experience, some sort of thing that I feel in worship. And you wouldn't be wrong about the importance of 
of religious experience to what it is to follow Jesus, right? If you can, if you can sing truth about him and not be moved by it ever, I mean, all of us have cold hearts, right, sometimes. I'm not saying that every time you sing a song, you've got to feel something specific. I'm saying if you never, ever find your heart engaged with what it is that you're saying or singing, then you've got to wonder whether or not you're really with Jesus. But that said, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that without love, I might speak with the tongues of men and of angels. I might even have the gift of prophecy. Without love... It's worse than useless. I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, he says. Some might say that service, that the service that we offer to each other is the primary marker of ourselves as authentic Christians. You could even get that out of what we looked at last week. Right? Last week, the first part of, of John 13 is this famous story of Jesus taking the filthy feet of his disciples and washing them himself doing something that was reserved for Gentile slaves. Jesus, God himself, come to earth, washed feet, and he called his followers to do the same. Just like I've served you, so you serve each other. So it makes sense, maybe, for you to think that the authentic marker of Christianity is is the service that we do for each other. You'd be right to say that authentic Christians do serve. But you'd be wrong to say this is a necessary, uh, essential, and always on the mark sign that you're with Jesus. Because we all know, every one of us, that we've done acts of service that from the outside looked selfless, beautiful even, but that were driven by our desire to be known as a good person. That were really more about us than they were about the people we serve. You can fake Christ-like service. So what is that marker of genuine, authentic Christianity? One that cannot be faked. Jesus says that it's love. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. But we got to say more than this, right? Because love is far from a uniquely Christian word or idea. Pretty much every world religion out there that I know of celebrates love for others. Love has been at the center of political protest movements. Think, make love, not war in the 1960s and 70s. It's been in lyrics of popular music from Elvis to Justin Bieber. It's the main theme of most novels that you're likely to find on Oprah's this year's recommended list. Love is not distinctly Christian, is it? So if this is the thing that's supposed to mark us, we've got to say more than just that we've got to love each other. I don't know anyone who doesn't think it would be a good idea for us to love each other and that it would be a bad idea for us not to love each other. So what is Jesus? Jesus must mean something more. If this is the thing that distinguishes Christianity, what kind of love are we talking about here? How can we recognize it and seek it in ourselves? I think that question is connected to another one. When Jesus says that that all men will know you're with me because you love each other, 
He says, he says that right after he said that he's giving them a new commandment. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. What's new about that? If you know anything about the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, you know that it's full of language like this, calling Israel to love not just God, but your neighbor as yourself. The call to love one another is not new. So what's new about this commandment? What's distinctive about Christian love? That's the most important questions that we want to answer today. We want to come away with a sense of what it is that must mark us if we want to be like him. What is Christian love? What's new about it? And I think the answer to both those questions, what's distinctive about Christian love and what makes it a new commandment that even the, the, the children of Israel in the Old Testament didn't have, the answer to both of those questions is in the demonstration of the love of God that we have in the person of Jesus. That there's something about Jesus' love that takes us into a new and deeper dimension than had ever been seen before he came and lived. And that it is this model It is something distinctive about Jesus' love as opposed to all the other counterfeit loves that we might have for each other that primarily marks us as with him. I want to unpack the picture of Jesus' love that he presents us with in two steps. I think to understand why it's distinctive, we need to understand the depth of Christian love. And then we need to understand the objects of Christian love. Those are the two things that set it apart from whatever it is that Bieber might be singing about this week. Two things set it apart. The depth of Christian love is different. And the objects of Christian love are different. Let's understand both of those together. Now, I want to read the passage. The the, the section that we're going to be spending most of our time in is right in the middle of the passage. It's bracketed by two stories of betrayal of Jesus. And we're going to come to those stories near the end of our time together to show something about the context of Jesus' love for us. But listen, especially as we read for the middle section where Jesus lays out there the centrality of love. Now, I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read from John chapter 13. I'm going to read verse 21 all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 38. This is the word of the Lord. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he'd said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he'd gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you. 
you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. The first thing we need to see together this morning, the first thing we need to try to cultivate in ourselves, the first thing that Jesus models for us is the depth of Christian love. A love that is abundant. A love that doesn't run dry. A love that doesn't stop short. That just keeps on pouring out. Here's another way to put it. It's a love that is more than just a gift of your resources. It's a love that is a gift of yourself. Not just a gift from what you have, but a gift of yourself to the beloved. That's the portrait of love that Jesus has been drawing in himself and in the way that he's interacted with people all through the book so far. When Jesus says in verse 34 that we're to love as he has loved us, and he tells them, love as I have loved you, I think we already can, can know, because of what we've seen so far, something about what he's thinking of. Something about what he's expecting his disciples would recognize. And he, he clearly believes that they know something about his love for them already. What was it that he thought they would, they would think of when he says, love as I've loved you? Certainly we've seen the breadth of his love so far. Uh, we've seen that there is no need that any human that he ever came across might have had that he was not willing to meet. We've seen him heal people and feed people. We've seen him spend time in conversation with the woman who had been an outcast from every other sector of society, the woman at the well. And of course, we just seen the most striking example of this in the book was the one we just saw last week. John chapter 13, verses 1, and, 1 through 20, describe this, this scene where Jesus takes the feet of his disciples and washes them. No one would ever do that. And you wouldn't wash a peer's feet, much less someone who was following you. Jesus was showing that Servant leadership is leadership that goes low for him. His love extended even to the feet of his disciple who he knew was going to betray him. He washed the feet of Judas. Surely that's partly what they have in their minds. The breadth of his love. The fact that he would do anything for anybody. But I think what Jesus has in his mind, that the most prominent thing he's thinking about when he says, love as I have loved you, is the primary reason that he came to the earth in the first place. He's thinking about the thing that has been driving his ministry from day one. 
He's thinking about what he's been thinking about since he came to his own self-awareness. He is thinking about his death. It's something he's been predicting in his teaching from early on in John. Think back to chapter 6. It's a chapter where he talks, where he, it's just after he's fed 5,000 people and he's talking about himself as the bread of life. And he's telling them, this bread of life has been given up for the life of the world so that if you eat me and drink me, if you take me into yourself so that I become part of your core being, take me into yourself and you'll have life, eternal life. Chapter 10, same point. He looks ahead, he describes himself as a good shepherd. He looks ahead to his death and says, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Not a hired hand who will give you just so much of himself as you might have paid for. He doesn't just give of his strength and his resources until push comes to shove and he feels the need to get out of there. I will give my life, he says, for the sheep. He didn't come willing to give up his life. He came precisely in order to give up his life. This theme was building all through the early chapters in this book, building to chapter 12, which just before where we are now, where he, t- where he talks about himself as the one who will be lifted up, and that when he's lifted up, he will draw all people to himself. That's what he came for. He says, for this purpose I have come, to this hour, to be lifted up and draw all men to me. That's what Jesus has been thinking all along. It's on his mind every day of his life. And it's on his mind when he tells his disciples that they must love as he has loved them. In fact, it's, it's what he's talking about in verses 31 and 32. One thing we've seen in John is that when, he talks, when Jesus talks about his own glory, when he talks about the day that he'll be glorified, what he's always talking about is like the last thing anyone then or now would expect. He's talking about the day of his greatest shame. He's talking about the, the, a pain greater than any of us could ever know, about absolute isolation from all good and truth and beauty, about an emptiness of himself, a complete pouring of himself out. That's what he means when he says, now is the time for my glorification. And in me, the Father gets glorified. God will be glorified when I die because he's the one who sent me. He imagined this plan to save the people who had abandoned him. Now he is glorified as the one who has a love that is unmatched by any other love in all of human experience. He's talking about his death when he's talking about glorification here. That's what's on his mind. What's on his mind when he says, love as I have loved you, is his own love that was not a sharing of himself, but a complete giving of himself. He belonged to his friends. Chapter 15, a couple chapters later, we get an almost identical phrase. He says again, love as I have loved you. And then he says, pointing to the depth of Christian love that we're unpacking right now, he says, greater love has no one than this that a man lay down his life for his friends. Love each other as I have loved you. Jesus' love was a love that didn't withhold anything. His love was more than a helping hand, more than a well-meaning check that he sent to some bureaucracy, some bureaucratic office in another part of the country, more than a couple hours that he gave up on a weekend morning. He loved with his life. He loved at the cost of his life. He gave up himself. And that's what he calls his followers to. All men will know that you are with me 
when you don't just give of yourselves to each other, but when you give yourselves to each other. Does that distinction make sense? Let's take it a little further. The depth of Christian love means a love, first of all, that is more than just sentimental. I think often the kind of meaning that we attach to the word love is more sentimental than anything else. We're talking about a way of feeling for someone. We're talking about a warmth or an attraction that we feel towards someone for some reason that's in them, something beautiful about them, or our desire to do them good. But sentimental love, love that is tied to and doesn't go further than what we feel, it's a love that won't go very far and isn't terribly distinctive. In fact, this is the same kind, if that's all that love is, that's the same kind of love that I experience for characters that I really like in a great novel. Recently read Grapes of Wrath for the first time. It's about 20 years too late, but better late than never. It was amazing. An incredible book. I was all the way in it. I was, I was living with the Jode family through all that happened to them. And I developed a kind of love for them. When things happened to them in the story, as they did on just about every page, that were brutal, just horrible, I felt something for them. I wanted to help them in one sense. At the very least, I empathize with them. But at the end of the night or whenever it was I was reading, I'd close the book and I would sleep fine and get up the next morning and do what I had to do, change a couple diapers, go to a couple meetings, chip away on a sermon, and wouldn't think much of anything about the Job family until I got back in there. But I wonder if you've ever thought about the fact that much of what we describe as love for each other doesn't go much further than that. It may as well be for a character in a book whose pages we can fold together and whose binder we can flop shut and forget. Our love for each other is sometimes just a way of feeling that we can turn off or on, that we can avoid if it becomes uncomfortable by looking the other way. And friends, that is a far cry from the depth of Christian love, which shows itself best at times when we don't feel love. To love like Jesus means a love that's more than sentimental. It means a love that's more than marginal as well. What I mean by that is, I think... Maybe I'm just talking about myself here, but I think, I think this will sound familiar. That often when we talk about our love for each other and what it drives us to do for each other, we're talking about what we do in the margins of our lives. Like with what space is left over. That we have our lives and they're built towards something. Usually towards something we want to accomplish. Usually towards things that we enjoy. Usually towards something that we're seeking And that's okay. It's inevitable that some of that stuff is going to creep into how we build our lives, what we aim them at. But oftentimes, what we love with is just what's left over. When we're done with whatever is required of us seeking these things that we really care about. 
In other words, again, we're willing to give from ourselves, from whatever resources we still have that are untapped, but we're not willing to give ourselves. We're not willing to open up to be fully vulnerable to what your needs might do to me, to give all of ourselves to each other. But when we bracket off how much we're willing to love, friends, we need to understand that we are bracketing off, we are walling off the full depth of Christian love and we are falling short of the kind of love that marks us as authentic followers of Jesus, as those who are with him. Because that's not how Jesus loved us. Jesus emptied himself. Jesus became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus came for us and gave himself to us. This is the kind of love that we're aiming for in church membership. I'm thinking about it. I've got a class coming up next week, thinking about some of, the, some of the language we use to help explain what we're talking about when we make a covenant of promises to each other. Here's, a, here's one example that helps a little bit. Talks about the, talking about the difference between love as we naturally know it, love as we're called to here. I'm a, I'm a graduate of Vanderbilt University, and there's a sense in which I love my school. Vanderbilt gets part of me. Uh, I love Vanderbilt enough to sometimes read the fundraising emails that they send me. <laughs> if I had more disposable income, maybe I'd love them enough to give here and there. I doubt it, but maybe. I'd at least read the emails at this point in my life. I love them enough to uh, take invitations that I receive from groups on campus when those come and speak there or come to a class or whatever. I really enjoy doing that. It's a way to love the school and its culture. I do love it enough to do that, spend that time. I love it enough to buy tickets sometimes to sporting events, depending on how much they are and how good the team is. I give of myself to Vanderbilt. But there's a very different kind of commitment that I've made to my family versus the commitment I've made to Vanderbilt. I don't give of myself to my wife and children. My commitment to them, the love that I have for them, is a love that structures my life. Like it is the grid through which I decide what I'm going to do, how I'm going to spend my money, what time I'm going to give to what activities. Anything about me, any opportunity that comes to me has to pass through the grid on good days, through the grid of how it will affect my family. Because there's a love for them that is more than just marginal. It's more than just what's left over. They have me. I belong to them. I am at their disposal. And this is the kind of love that Jesus showed for his followers when he came to die for them, and it's the kind of love that he's calling for here. That in our, in our, in our congregation, in our community, the way that we're called to love each other, the way that when we love each other will mark us as being really with him is not giving what's left over to each other, but taking each other into the core of who we are, belonging to each other, taking each other into account with whatever decisions we make about what we're going to do with our money, what we're going to do with our time, where we're going to, 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 to spend our resources, who we're going to pursue, where we're going to say no, what opportunities we aren't going to take. 
I know that sounds radical. That is, that is so un-American. But it is Christian to love each other with that kind of priority. The love that, that shows the depth of Jesus' love is more than just sentimental. It's more than just marginal. And for those reasons, friends, this kind of love is more than we can manage. This kind of love is more than we can manage. It just isn't possible for us. How in the world do we find strength to love like this? I, I guarantee you that there is no Christian who has ever lived through all of Christian history who has never found themselves feeling like they just don't have anything else to give. Like they've been giving and giving and giving and there's just no more there. How do you keep loving when your marginal resources are tapped out? I think we have to begin in one place and in only one place. That the solution to our struggle to love one another, the solution Jesus is pointing us to here in the way that he calls us to this kind of love, the solution to our struggle to keep on loving each other when we're tapped out is to gaze more fully and to abide more deeply in his love for us. Now, I know what you're thinking. If you're tapped out right now, you're thinking I just gave you a non-answer. Maybe what you're thinking is that you have tried this already and it doesn't work. That it's just me trying to get rid of you almost by saying, well, just go think about Jesus more and all your problems will go away. Your life will be awesome. I know it can seem a little bit dismissive to say that, maybe even simplistic and naive. But I think that's what Jesus is calling us to here. I think that's why he says, as I have loved you, so you love one another. He's directing their minds to a pattern of love that he set and is still to set in the rest of this story. He's saying, for you to mark yourselves as those who are with me, you need to gaze on my love for you because it's as I have loved you that you're to love one another. He makes the same point. I've already pointed ahead to chapter 15, where we'll be in a few weeks. He makes the same point there. Same language, love each other as I have loved you. But it comes in a bigger passage where what he's calling them to do is to abide in his love. That's his language. In John chapter 15, verse 9, he says, love as I have loved you, abide in my love. I think what he means is that there is great power in just sitting in, seeping in, dwelling in the pattern of love that he has set for us. That we've got to know him as our savior before we will ever be able to know him as our example. One one bad way to read the text we're unpacking right now would be to say, okay, Jesus did this and now he's called me to go do like that, so let's go. You know, let's charge the walls and make it happen. You're, you're just going to be beating your head against that brick wall if that's, if that's your approach. Because until Jesus is more than just an example for you, until he is also the Savior who came to make a new life possible for you, Jesus will never be any good to you. You've got to first look to what he's done before you go try to be like him. But if, if you give yourself to reflection, careful, ongoing reflection on what he's done for you. Friends, what I think you'll find is what Christians have been finding ever since this time, that there is power 
in his model that you can catch something of what he had just by living with him in his love. It's not a non-answer. It does mean that you need to try differently, perhaps, to come to him for your pattern of love. It does mean that you've got to build in time for reflection and prayer and worship of him that isn't driven by the bottom line. I think the common problem that I've felt in myself and heard from other people is that, you, is that you've tried this, you've tried to give some of your attention to Jesus, and it just hasn't changed the way you feel. So, so what have I got to do? Tell me how much I've got to give before it starts to change me. Let's say I give 15 minutes one morning of really thinking carefully about who Jesus is and what he's done for me. How much change in my feeling towards other people do you suppose I could count on if I gave 15 minutes? Let's say I made it 30. Would that double the amount of love I would feel for each other? Well, it just doesn't work like that. We just got to get out of our, our mode of efficiency and guaranteed results if what we want to do is, is tap into the power of Jesus' love for us. We've got to give up on the bottom lines and on what we demand to get out of it, and we've just got to give ourselves to him, to thinking and reflecting and worshiping him through the pattern of love that he set for us. And over time, over time, when we abide in his love, change will come. It's not an exact parallel, but it, there, there is a parallel here to something we've all experienced, the way that we catch on to loves that others have. Last weekend, I took my son to the Vanderbilt football game. And for the first quarter or so, he seemed to be having a great time. But what was obvious pretty soon after that was that he had just been sort of feeding on my love for the whole game day experience. There were some things about it that he liked. You know, he liked seeing the helmets, you know, and the pads and men running out through the steam and the fireworks. He enjoys mascots for some creepy reason. He enjoys the pageantry, but he, he doesn't really love the game, the experience of watching a team that I love, but that he doesn't really love. So he was able to sort of leech onto my affections for a little while, but it ran out. But I remember when I was a kid, the way that my affection for, for sports, and in particular for a couple of different sports teams, developed through relationship with my father. I know there was a time where I was no different than my son when I was going to events with him or watching it on TV with him. But there was also a time where a switch flipped, where after giving myself to this experience with my father over time, where his loves actually got passed on to me, and they actually became mine. And they began to drive how I interacted with the teams that he loved. Where I wasn't anymore just sort of running on his steam but through our relationship and just through time I'd come to own them as mine and I think the way to tap into Jesus love looks a lot like that for us we just got to give it time we've got to take off the table our expectation of how much output we should be able to expect from our input and we've got to just live with him we've got to in his words abide in his love and when we do that, well, then we can love as he's loved us. Then we're getting a little bit closer to pulling off the depth of a distinctive, authentic, beautiful Christian love. That's the first point 
much more quickly to conclude, I want to point you to something about the objects of Christian love that comes through in the two little half stories, if you will, on either side of Jesus' famous statement. This is something I had not noticed much before preparing, and I wonder if you've noticed it. I just want to point you to it and let it sit. Did you notice that on the front end of Jesus calling them to think about how he loved them is a story about deep betrayal from one that he loved? The story of Judas running out from an intimate dinner in which he'd been given this bread, this morsel of honor from Jesus, running out into the night to do what Jesus already knew he was going to do. It's something we talked about a little bit last week and so won't unpack further here. The pain of that personal betrayal. A lot of times, though, we can, we can look at Judas and say, there is no way I could ever be like that guy. You know, if I had seen what he saw, there's no way I would have ever turned Jesus in just for, you know, a little bag of silver coins. But on the backside of the Jesus famous statement comes another story, or in this case more of a prediction, that fills out, I think, this picture of who it is that Jesus loved with his whole life. There's a sense in which he didn't love G- Judas with his life. Jesus had made clear in his statements earlier in the passage that that he wasn't dying for Judas. That Judas had made his choice. That Judas would receive the judgment that he deserved. But here on the backside of Jesus' famous statement, with Peter, who is supposedly the rock, the one on whom Jesus is going to build his church, the one who claims, I'm willing to lay down my life for you. Where are you going that I can't come with you? This Peter, among his closest of close friends, would deny him, would abandon him in his moment of need. When everyone else turned their back, Peter would turn right along with them. And Jesus died for this man. Jesus gave everything for this man. So friends, here's the second thing, what I want you to leave thinking about. The second thing, that is distinctive, that is beautifully attractive about unique Christian love, is the object of Christian love. That it directs itself not just to people who deserve it. It directs itself even to those like Peter who deny the lover. What it does for us, if we're to follow him in this love, if we're to take on a love that glorifies him, is take off the table two things that we're all most likely to think about when we decide whether we're going to love somebody. What it does is take off the table the question of, is this person lovable? Is there something in them that I'm attracted to? Do I like them? takes those off the, off the table, takes that one off the table, and takes off the table the question, does this person love me? Distinctive, authentic, and beautiful Christian love is not a bargaining chip 
where you put it out there in exchange for what you expect to get in return, where you give it in order to put someone else in your debt. Christian love, love that looks like Jesus' love, is a gift. And friends, Christian community, from your small group to the body at large, is not possible without this kind of love. Because I can promise you that even this church, with only four years of history and a pretty small membership list, even this church is full of broken people, of cold-hearted people, of self-centered people, of depressed people, angry people, prideful people, overly confident people, lazy people. And if you only give as much of your love to them as is deserved, your love won't go very far and your love won't say anything about what has been done for you by Jesus. But if we love each other without asking whether or not there's anything in this person that I should love, without asking how well this person has loved me, when we love each other like that, we participate in the glory of our Savior. We add to the glory of our Savior and to the God who sent Him. And we give to the world a picture that they won't be able to miss of what it is to be with Jesus. That is our calling. Father, you've called us to something that is too big for us. Help us by your Spirit. Thank you for Jesus and for the love that he has shown to us. Help us and hold us together by our love for each other. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.